For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes I'll be running at the YMCA or out walking the dog or just sitting in my office when an idea will pop right into my head. And the idea is like a seed that starts to germinate throughout my mind into sermon topics and Bible studies and blog posts. And that idea, it will grow and it will grow. And right before it disappears, I make sure to grab a notebook and write it down before it's lost forever. And you know what? Right now, would you believe it? I've got an idea. The problem is I don't have any paper up here and I don't have a pencil, but would you believe it? Every one of you has a blank piece of paper in your bulletin today. This is your cue to grab it. And one of the pencils from the back of the pew in front of you. Because I need your help. I have this idea and I don't want to lose it, so try to keep up as best you can. I'm going to dictate to you and I want you to get this good stuff down. All right. We are justified... By faith, by God's faith. And we're justified by this faith, and because of it, we have peace with God through Jesus. I mean, it's not only that, we we boast about this in our worst moments because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. I think. It's pretty good. You all still with me? All right. And we have this hope. We get there because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And we know this because God loved us while we were still weak and Christ died for the ungodly. Like when you think about it, how often will someone die for a righteous person? Well, I guess every once in a while someone might actually dare to die for a good person. But God proves God's love to us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You all have that, right? Should be about the whole page. If you need to flip it over to the back, that's okay. All right, but it's it's not even that. It's more than that. Because we've been justified by Christ's blood. We will be saved from the wrath of God. Through Jesus' death, we were reconciled back to God. And through Jesus, we will be saved. Did you get all that? You all have all that written down? Okay, let me just try to simplify it. If you don't have all that, I do want you to write these words. Seriously. We know God loves us because Christ died for us while we were sinners. We know God loves us because Christ died for us while we were sinners. That's just Romans 5, 1 through 11. We just heard it from Betty Harefield. And I think that Paul, the apostle, is hard to take from the pulpit sometimes. Give me one of the stories of Jesus, the healings or one of the parables, and those things preach themselves. Sometimes I think it would be better if I just stood up here, read the story, and sat down and didn't preach a word. But with Paul, with this letter to Rome, we get this new and strange and difficult thing called theology. 
And Paul writes in a way that we almost cannot even understand today because we live in an age of 140 character tweets from our president, frenetic television shows that just bounce from one thing to the next, and YouTube videos that I don't even know what they're really about. We no longer have the minds nor the patience to hear Paul's theology from Romans. And his theology was probably dictated, just like I dictated to you, he had someone else write down what he was thinking and saying. And you can almost hear that. I mean, who would die for a righteous person? Though I think maybe somebody might actually dare to die for a good person. Paul is making this up as he goes. It's practical theology. It's not a perfectly crafted sermon meant for the pulpit It's theology written by the greatest missionary the world has ever known. And he starts by talking about suffering. It's the passage that most of us probably knew before we heard it. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this isn't just some sort of esoteric idea of suffering. Paul is talking from his own experience. At the time he wrote this near the end of his life, he was not a young, prematurely balding, healthy pastor standing in his pulpit telling a congregation to keep their chins up. No, Paul suffered for the gospel. He was arrested for it, he was persecuted for it, and he continued on. That's why he can say that suffering leads to hope. For him, it wasn't an empty promise. For him, it was the story of his life. Then we get to this other section about dying for other people. Dying for other people, for one's country, for our families, these are stories that captivate our hearts and our emotions. The thought of all the firefighters rushing into the World Trade Center buildings on September 11th, or the thought of all the people who volunteered to go to the other side of the world for World War II, or just hearing about a mother who sacrifices herself for her children, that pulls on our heartstrings. But here in Paul's letter, this, what he's talking about, is even more radical than any of that. We have to try to put aside the emotional wave of grief and reverence we have for stories about modern sacrifice for someone's friends or their family or their country. Paul doesn't say that Jesus died for his friends or that Jesus died for his family or even his country. Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says that Christ died for us while we were his enemies. Talk about an elephant in the room. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We hear it when we read from Romans. I say it to you every first Sunday of the month after we confess before one another. There's this period of silence and I say, now hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners and that proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. But do we believe it? We, me, I don't like talking about sin. We want to hear about love and peace and joy and hope and happiness. Only the converted, those who have been truly captivated by Christ, think of themselves as sinners. Others of us, we don't want to have anything to do with it. That is why we so seldom read from Paul's letters in church, because we don't like the idea of us being sinners, of us being ungodly. Instead, people say, preacher, 
Can't you just give us a little more love and grace from the pulpit? People don't want to come to church to hear about their sins. And yet we love reading the gossip columns and we love watching TMZ to see how far the celebrities fall. We don't like admitting our shortcomings, our faults, our helplessness. We reject that gospel and we substitute another one. It's one we've talked about here in this church. We'd rather believe the American gospel. God helps those who help themselves. Actually, in this passage, Paul tells us quite the opposite. When we could not help ourselves, Christ died for us. In this age of tweets and 20-minute television shows and traffic-filled websites, we want everything compartmentalized as much as possible. Instead of reading an entire newspaper, we want a short and brief email every morning that tells us only what we need to know. Instead of buying the latest hit book and spending a whole afternoon in our favorite chair, we read a summary online so we can talk about it with our friends. Instead of going to church for an hour a week to experience the presence of God, people read the sermon online and they check off the the box of the Christian list of to-dos. We, whether we admit it or not, are consumed by this desire to compress everything as much as possible into something as small as possible. Paul completely rejects this desire that we can limit the gospel to any sentence or paragraph. The gospel, the good news, is nothing less than the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if we can't resist that temptation, if we have to have something small, something we can take with us at all times to know what the gospel is, well, this might work. While we were still sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. This is crazy stuff. Our Lord and Savior, the guy in the stained glass window right there, died for the ungodly. Who is the most ungodly person you can think of right now? Try for just a moment. Who's the most ungodly person you can think of? I know some of you immediately, you think of ISIS on the other side of the world, currently terrorizing the regions under their control. Others of you, you'll think of the leaders in North Korea that are trying to develop new nuclear weapons of mass destruction. Some of you are thinking of Donald Trump and the seemingly endless executive orders that are coming out of the Oval Office these days. Some of you might even be thinking about someone in the church. But if it's too hard to think of someone ungodly, Just think about somebody you're frustrated with right now. Just one person you're angry with, someone who's bothered you in the last week, a friend, a relative, a spouse, a child, it doesn't matter. Just think of one person who's bothering you right now. And guess what? Jesus died for them. Whoever you're thinking of right now, whoever that completely backwards and horrible and disappointing person that's bouncing around in your mind right now, Jesus died for them. For them. That's the real elephant in the room. That Jesus died precisely for the sort of person that would crucify him and mock him while they were doing it. People like me. People like you. These things that we call faith and discipleship, they're not very religious in the sense of being pretty and easy to handle. 
They're not something we can carry around in our pockets during the week only to show up when we need them. The cross of Christ is far too offensive to be nice and religious. The cross and the death of Christ, they shatter our expectations given to us by the world. They are strange. But in their strangeness, they reorient us back toward the radical nature of God's love. The offensive and scandalous cross is somehow our hope and our joy. Because in and through the cross, God did something that none of us would ever do. As the old hymn goes, the immortal God hath died for me. God's love in Christ is so comprehensive, so bewildering, that it is able to wash away even the greatest of sins. I started the sermon asking you to write down what I was saying, a dictation, an imaginative way of reimagining the writing of Paul's letter to Romans. If you wrote anything down, this is your cue to look at it again, I hope you wrote this down. We know that God loves us, Because Christ died for us while we were sinners. And now what I want you to do is write down the name of the person you were thinking of on the top of your paper. The person you were thinking of just a moment ago, that person you're angry with, that person that's bothering you, I want you to write their name at the top. And if you've been here ever you know what I'm going to ask you to do next. I'm going to ask you to send this letter to that person. I'm going to ask you to take this piece of paper home with you, fold it up, put it in an envelope, address it, stamp it, put it in the mail tomorrow, and send them this letter. And I know that you probably won't do it. I know that you won't do it because I probably wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it because it's uncomfortable Because then you'd have to explain to them why you're sending them this weird paraphrase of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It's so uncomfortable. We won't send this affirmation of God's unnerving love to someone because it would force us into a place we'd rather avoid. We don't want to come off as being too evangelistic, too churchy. We don't want to admit that we have a problem with the person that we have a problem with. But can you imagine the shock on their face if they received your letter? Can you imagine how bewildered they would be by something that Christians say all the time? But perhaps most importantly, can you imagine how it would change the way you look at them for the rest of your life? While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. In our weakness, we reject things like the challenge to confront our sins, and we reject the forgiving nature of God's love for the world and for us and for the ungodly. We forget that Jesus died for our shame and our sin and our sadness. We forget that Christ died for our disappointment and our degenerate derelictions and our deficiencies. We forget that Christ died for us and for the people whose names are now on our paper. And yet... Christ still died for us. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. To God and to the Lamb who is the great I am we shall sing. And when from death we are free through all eternity we shall sing, we shall sing, we shall sing.
For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.